Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up, catfish in the water, giants on the stage, and the next big thing for a couple leaving their Virginia horse farm. I happened to see on the news the essay contest for a bed and breakfast and restaurant, and I thought, we need to do this too. But we'll kick off today's show by diving into a brand new summer series. All about the public swimming pools in Washington, D.C. Throughout their history, swimming pools have been both socially and culturally contested spaces. I'm going to love this pool to the day I die. When I tell my friends, oh, I'm going to the public pool, they're kind of skeptical about it. The demographics have definitely changed. (laughs) This is like an incredibly nice pool. With 29 pools and counting, the district has more public swimming pools per capita than any city in the nation. And they're all free to D.C. residents. This week, we head to Banneker Pool near Howard University. It was built in 1934, back when all D.C. recreational facilities were segregated by law. At the time, it was a sparkling new pool for the growing black community. Since then, it's remained a cornerstone for the neighborhood, but the pool sits in the middle of some of the city's fastest changing areas. Emily Berman has this look at how, as Washington changes, its public pools are changing too. The summer Alex McCall was eight years old, he decided to jump off Banneker's big red lifeguard tower. It was what all the cool kids did. So he climbed up, signaled to his friends he was about to jump, and then... I belly flopped. It was the worst. And from then on, I wanted to learn how to swim like a professional. Since then, McCall has spent a lot of time at this pool, more than almost anywhere else in the world. I grew up by Petworth Station on Quincy Street and Georgia Avenue. Born 89, so I grew up around a lot of drugs. But one thing kids did have was the pool during the summertime. We'll just come swim all day and just stay here from beginning to end. He eventually became a lifeguard and started working at the pool when he was 15. Now, a decade later, he's the pool manager. He's kept an eye on this pool for more days than he can count. And boy, has it changed. In the last five years, it's basically changed almost all the way over. All the way white, McCall means. And to understand what a change this is, you have to know a little bit about the history of pools in D.C. The late 1920s saw a boom in swimming culture. D.C. broke ground on the city's first public pools, four for white Washingtonians and two pools built for blacks. Those were the Francis Pool near Georgetown and Banneker, named for Benjamin Banneker, the free African-American scientist who in the 1790s helped survey the district's original boundaries. Banneker, Pool, and Francis were really, really large, appealing state-of-the-art facilities. Jeff Wiltsey is a professor of history at the University of Montana. He studies the social history of swimming pools in America. These became vibrant, popular public spaces that large numbers of black residents came to, children and adults, um, you know, poor and working class and middle class black residents of Washington, D.C. Banneker Pool hosted countless swim meets and family gatherings. In most other cities, black residents were either not provided pools or the one pool that was provided for them was small, it was dilapidated, it was unappealing. The situation got complicated after World War II. All public facilities were desegregated, but that didn't mean everyone jumped into the pool together. Many white Washingtonians moved to the suburbs and built their own private pools. The members could legally discriminate against black Americans, Latino Americans, and other social groups who they didn't want to swim with. 
While private pools flourished, public pools in cities went into decline. But lately in Washington, that's changed. The city has spent tens of millions of dollars on pool construction and upgrades. Tyrell Lashley is the director of aquatics for the DC Department of Parks and Recreation. Banneker Pool is kind of the melting pot. We see families, we're seeing a lot more millennials. Banneker is in the heart of gentrifying DC. The zip code where it's located was 8% white in the 2000 census. By 2013, it was nearly 40% white, making it one of the top 10 fastest changing zip codes in the nation. Andrea Palmiter is one of the relative newcomers. She swam at Banneker for the first time last year. When I tell my friends, oh, I'm going to the public pool, they're kind of skeptical about it, but it's like an incredibly nice pool. Across the pool, Helen Rubase and her husband, Joshua Gross, sit on a towel with their 11-month-old Gabriel. It's their first time at the Banneker pool. We've been to the one in Georgetown. And at Haynes Point. Haynes Point. We should get a punch card. We might, we might fill out like half the punch card. On, was it M Street? If, if you think about D.C., right, you've got a lot of diversity, but a lot of different groups that don't necessarily talk to one another or interact. And a pool is kind of like, it's kind of like a safe space, right, because everybody can kind of do their own thing and be around one another and read The Economist or you know, play with their kids. And, and you're around other people, but you're also sort of in your own little world. George Lander has lived in the area since starting school at Howard. When I moved here in 2005, I think most of the people that I would see here were probably afraid to come to the pool. His sister, Anasa, agrees, but says she gets it. Why wouldn't you come here? You know, it's great for low-income families. It's great for high-income families because everyone wants to save money. And it's not anything that's stressful. And you can just sit back and relax. You can tan if you're not really into the water. And that's just what they're doing today, hanging out on lounge chairs, watching their nephew, Josai, swim. I just dived in the water, then I just swim, swim, swim. Even if I feel the pressures of gentrification outside of the gates of the pool, just let the pool be the pool. Everyone's getting along with everyone. All of the kids are playing. This is going to be their normal. Pool manager Alex McCall says from his vantage point as a lifelong Banneker swimmer, the pool still serves the same purpose it always has. Coming here kept me out of the streets for a long time. McCall says he'll always consider it a home, no matter who else is here or what they look like. I'm Emily Berman. Want to check out Banneker Pool for yourself? It's hosting a late-night pool party this weekend. You can learn more on our website, metroconnection.org, where you'll also find details about the rest of our series on D.C.'s public pools. We now move from one body of water to another. If you look in many of our region's waterways, you'll find fish that aren't native to these parts. Species such as blue catfish were imported, not by accident like many invasives, but deliberately by the government. In fact, up until the 1970s, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was practically in the business of introducing new non-native species for recreational fishing. Now, blue catfish are expanding their range in the mid-Atlantic and growing to record size. As environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, scientists worry blues could be edging out other creatures in the underwater ecosystem. Out on Virginia's Pamunkey River, about 30 miles east of Richmond, 
dozens of blue catfish are rising to the top of the water. So you see it's just moved off the channel drop off and you're starting to see fish come to the surface there. Bob Greenley, a biologist with the Virginia Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, stands beside me in a small aluminum vessel as a couple of his colleagues sweep a small circle with an electro fishing boat. Puts out about a thousand volts, so that's a lot of voltage but low amperage. And what it'll do is it'll stun the fish or cause the fish to go into what's called narcosis or go to sleep and float to the surface. Most of the blues rising to the surface are only about a foot and a half long, weighing five to eight pounds. Their bellies are white and their dorsal areas are a blue-gray that gets darker with age. It's a, a high number of fish and that's one of the concerns that people have as far as the biomass that's tied up in blue catfish and what is the impact of that on other resources. One of the biologists spots a sizable specimen temporarily paralyzed a few yards away. He scoops it up into a net and hauls it to the middle of the boat into a tub filled with river water. Oh, oh that's a big fish. Blue catfish can live for 20 years or so, but they can get much bigger than this. A fish hooked in the James River in 2009 weighed in at 102 pounds, a state record at the time. Virginia now claims the world record as well. A fisherman pulled in a 143-pound monster near the North Carolina border in 2011. Biologists believe blue cats are still on the rise in terms of abundance and size farther north in another river you may have heard of the Potomac. Mary Groves, a fisheries biologist with Maryland's Department of Natural Resources, fires up her electrofishing boat. She heads out of Piscataway Creek in Fort Washington, motoring for deeper water. Sure enough, in the middle of the Potomac, she and her crew net four 30-pound fish within 10 minutes. Anytime you have a fish that grows to that size as a top predator, which these guys are, it's absolutely cause for concern. That's a lot of fish that's going to have to maintain that type of biomass. Watermen in Virginia complain that big blues will chow down on full-size blue crabs, emptying entire traps. On the Potomac, Groves worries about blue catfish eating American shad, a protected species just now trying to make a comeback in the river. So Maryland's DNR is urging catfish enthusiasts to do something that goes against their angling sensibility kill every blue catfish they haul in. I mean, we certainly don't feel at this point that as many fish that people can take out is gonna, you know, put the population down to zero, but every, every bit helps. Keith Barker works as a river guide for Life Outdoors Unlimited on the Potomac, a river he says is big enough to absorb the impact of giant blue catfish. He says the pull of a big blue catfish on the line is unmistakable. It's like hooking a freight train heading to Richmond, you know. The record for a blue catfish caught in Maryland waters is an 84-pound fish caught, you guessed it, in the Potomac three years ago. The previous state record fish was caught in the Potomac as well, and Barker says the river now rivals any spot in the country when it comes to fishing for blue cats. My theory is that there's probably a 100-pound fish out there in the Potomac River, and it's just a matter of time until somebody catches one and sets a new record. Back on the Pamunkey River in Virginia, Gregory Rieger isn't worried about setting a record. A biology assistant with Bob Greenlee's team, he's performing a quick surgery on a five-pound fish that will soon go back in the river. Pop it in, make sure it goes in. And you actually have to sew it up? Mm-hmm. Rieger cuts an inch-long slit in the side of the fish, inserting a telemetry capsule. It'll send sonar pings to state biologists for up to three years. 
Bob Greenlee says this will help him figure out where these ravenous fish are moving season to season. He says in general, scientists still have more questions than answers about how tidal river ecosystems and apex predators such as blue catfish behave. Everybody understands that they're overabundant. They just have been in our tidal rivers. Um, they've exploded. For decades, they've been overabundant. Greenlee and other local biologists seem to agree that eradicating blue catfish just isn't an option at this stage. The key will be studying them enough to figure out how to manage their populations. However many 100-pounders are lurking in the deep. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Wonder what the largest blue catfish ever caught in Maryland looks like? You're in luck. Find a photo on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, using tech to target hunger. We were able to find four locations, two being the mobile homes. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, welcome back to Metro Connection. Later in the show, ever dream of owning a farm in Virginia horse country? Well, express that dream in 1,000 words and it could be yours. We'll meet a husband and wife looking to give away their farm by holding an essay contest. Plus, the future of Walter Reed will kick off a new series about redeveloping the historic Army Medical Center in Northwest DC. But first, if you've read a certain award-winning novel by fantastical children's author Roald Dahl, then these words might ring a bell. I think eating people is horrible. I told you, I is not eating people, not I. I is a, a, a freaky giant. I is a nice and jumbly giant. I is the BF. The BFG, short for the Big Friendly Giant. <laughs> Dahl published his book about the buck swashling, hip switching giant and Sophie, the little girl he plucks from her window, in 1982. If I hadn't snitched you, you would be scuttling around yodeling the news on the telly telly bunkit box that you was actually seeing the giant. Starting this week, through the magic of enormous intricate puppets and the nimble actors wearing them on their shoulders, the BFG is getting a larger-than-life stage production at the National Theater, the oldest continuously operating business on Pennsylvania Avenue. The BFG is the inaugural production of the National Children's Theater, a new partnership between the National Theater and Imagination Stage. The Bethesda-based children's theater Bonnie Fogel started in 1979. We want to establish the National Children's Theater fully committed to work for young audiences. The National Children's Theater will produce four or five shows a year in the historic National Theater, which has entertained presidents from Andrew Jackson to Ronald Reagan and hosted countless stars, from Fanny Bryce to Carol Channing to Kirk Douglas to Sir Ian McKellen. 
One of the shows in the National Children's Theater's season will be a remount from Imagination Stage, like the BFG, which originally ran in Bethesda last year. The remount will play for several weeks in the summer, then, as Bonnie Fogel explains, in the fall. If you are a D.C. school child, either with D.C. public schools or with D.C. public charter schools, you will be one of 10,000 children who we're inviting to see this show. With the National Children's Theater footing the bill. So we're talking the tickets, the buses, the teacher materials, all for free. But the National Children's Theater won't just feature work by Imagination Stage. We truly will be a National Children's Theater. We will be showcasing other TYAs from around the country. TYAs, as in theaters for young audiences, who can apply to bring their own productions to the National Theater's grand proscenium stage. Imagination Stage's Associate Artistic Director Kate Breyer, who's co-directing the BFG, says it's not that our area is lacking a TYA scene. We have a really strong group of theaters here, the Kennedy Center and Adventure Theater and, and us. I think we're all very much on the cutting edge of what I see around the country and what's happening. But this new collaboration, she says, just sort of takes it to the next level. For one thing, by bringing back one Imagination Stage production a year, Artistic Director Janet Stanford says they'll reach D.C residents who haven't made that Bethesda trip. Even though we're only 10, 12 miles up the road, there's much more of an ownership factor if you can feel like the theater you're going to is really in your neighborhood. Not that the National Children's Theater will just expand audiences geographically. Imagination stage is somewhat limited in that we only perform for the elementary school ages, and that's to do with practical things about Montgomery County schools don't take field trips after elementary school. But the TYAs they import from elsewhere will be presenting all kinds of shows. Shows for teenagers, shows for middle school kids. Thereby attracting a whole new set of young people. Though, as the National Theatre Corporation's executive director Sarah Bartlow points out, this new alliance between her company and Imagination Stage isn't without its challenges. It's a big, hairy, audacious goal to bring so many pieces together, two different boards together, and find the backing of the entire district, and then ultimately nationally. But they're off to a promising start. They've nabbed a number of corporate sponsors, as well as a $100,000 grant from the D.C. Commission on the Arts and Humanities. Eventually, says Bonnie Fogel, they hope to raise enough funds to make the National Children's Theater international and capture and disseminate performances digitally on video. In much the same way that the National Theater in London does. So the dream is a continuing, expanding dream that goes from this show and goes on to be digitized and available to the world. That way, she says, even more children will have their imaginations sparked by the theater, an increasingly important thing in this age of iPhones, iPads, and other electronic gadgetry. It's important because of the sheer joy that theater brings, the way it empowers children, the way it allows children to think about the way someone else lives their life, the way it encourages empathy. Not only that, but it's important because of the way it grows and develops the next generation of theater goers. Because otherwise, nobody's going to be going to our adult theaters because children are all growing up with no theater in their lives. And that would be a very catastrophic and galumptious thing indeed. The BFG runs through July 25th at the National Theater in downtown D.C. You can see photos of those giant puppets and find more information about the show on our website, metroconnection.org. 
while theater can be a mind-expanding experience for children, you can't exercise your mind on an empty stomach. It turns out in the D.C. area, one in five kids has limited access to nutritious meals. They're among the half a million people at risk of going hungry in our region. But it's often difficult finding these individuals and giving them the help they need. That's why the Capital Area Food Bank has turned to technology to locate pockets of food insecurity. As Lauren Ober tells us, one new program is the Kids Food Bus, which rolled out for the first time in June. If you're driving on Jefferson Davis Highway in Woodbridge, it's easy to miss the Marumsco Mobile Home Park. First, there's no signage or street address out front. Second, it's basically hidden in a gully behind an auto zone and a taco joint on an extremely busy road. Because of its location, the kids who live at Marumsco are basically trapped in the park during the summer. Most are children of Latino immigrants and many live in poverty. They need the services that the food bank provides, but they can't get to them. This is a remote location for them. They can't cross the main street, and they have barriers that prevent them from going to the mobile sites. That's Amanda Brundage, who coordinates the mobile meals program for the food bank. Because Marumsco is tucked away out of view, it would have been hard for the food bank folks to find the kids. But using new mapping technology called the Hunger Heat Map, the food bank has been able to locate clusters of unmet food needs in the region and deploy services, like the kids' food bus, to address those needs. It showed locations where the hunger was most prevalent, where there was more hunger. And from there, we were able to find four locations, two being the mobile homes. When you look at the hunger heat map on a computer, it's immediately apparent where the unaddressed need is. Big red patches cover places like Dale City and Gaithersburg, indicating hungry people who aren't getting served. For the food bank's executive director, Nancy Roman, that visibility makes all the difference. People really identify with maps. There's this huge emotional human connection to a map that I think allows us to really connect people to what's happening. It's funny, sometimes you can know these things, but when you see them, they feel more immediate. The hunger heat map is unique to the Capital Area Food Bank. The concept is pretty simple. The map shows layers of metrics, like how much food is being distributed and where the need is greatest. Together, all those layers tell the story of hunger in our region. Michael Hollister designed the technology for the food bank. He says being able to see where the gaps in service are has been critical. We're able to see not only where the need is, but also what our impact is in the community. And we're able to assess after our impact, what is there left to do? In the year or so that the heat map has been around, the food bank has used it to determine where to locate services and to design new programs. Cecilia Vergaretti, the food bank's Northern Virginia director, says that's how her staff came up with the kids' food bus. We looked at the hunger heat map and we said, wow, look at all the spots that have high poverty, high food insecurity. And we challenged them and we said, tell us how you would feed these kids down in Prince William County. It's a lot different than Fairfax County. Every weekday, the bus serves 200 kids, give or take, at four locations, including the Marumsco Mobile Home Park. On this day, the big white bus painted with smiling fruits and vegetables rolls up as kids play soccer in the park's only green space. They're waiting for their free bagged lunch, which they get every weekday in the summer. 
One of the kids, Julian Ambrose, stops playing long enough to tell me what's in his bagged lunch. Sandwiches, juice, milk, and fruits. And how is the lunch? It's actually pretty good. Julian lives in one of the trailer homes with his parents and three siblings. His dad, a Mexican immigrant, works construction. His mom stays at home to watch the kids. Julian says the food bus has been a welcome sight during the summer. There's a lot of people that can't afford food, so that really helps us. And with that, he takes a bite of his apple from his bagged lunch, chugs some milk, and heads back to the makeshift soccer field. Were it not for the food bus and the tech that sent it off into the world, Julian's lunch today likely wouldn't have been nearly this healthy or this cheap. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see the hunger heat map yourself? Link to it on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Crystal City, Virginia, and West Annapolis, Maryland. My name is Gary Fuller, and I live in the Crystal City section of Arlington, Northern Virginia, and I've lived here about 10 years. Crystal City is kind of a sliver of land about four blocks wide and about 20 blocks long. It's right between the Pentagon and National Airport. Crystal City actually didn't exist until about 1960 when Charles E. Smith Company, actually at that time was Robert H. Smith, decided this was a wonderful area of land to be developed and he built a, a building which he called Crystal House because it had a huge crystal chandelier in it. And that name just kind of stuck and this became Crystal City. When it was built, uh, it was focused on its connection to the airport and, the, and to the Pentagon and people came here to work. It was not known as a place to live and in fact, there's about 10,000 people who live here, and about 90% of those live in apartments, and about 90% of them are either single or two-family uh, residences. So there's only a few of us who uh, are older and who uh, live in, uh, in condominiums. With the base closing realignment and closing uh, act, Crystal City realized that it needed to change its face because it was going to lose a lot of those offices. And so it is focused now on developing its streetscape and on developing it to be a more living uh, area. So there's a lot of activities going on now to try to focus on the, uh, the population who resides here. I can't think of any reason why I'd want to want to leave here. In fact, my wife and I were just discussing that we're going to retire in place here. They, they probably have to wheel us out of here because it is so convenient. My name is Erica Hawley Hoffman, and I'm in Annapolis, Maryland, in the neighborhood of West Annapolis. West Annapolis is actually a peninsula, and it's surrounded by um, Weems Creek and the Severn River, and I guess it would extend all the way down to where the Naval Academy begins. One of the neat things about our neighborhood is that um, there's a set of railroad tracks that goes down to um, the Severn River, and that used to be a little port there. There used to be like, you know, pubs and bars and things there, and most of them now are houses. 
Our neighborhood has a book club, we have a dinner club, we have fourth, a little 4th of July parade, which is really, you know, that goes down through our, our neighborhood. And I think there's more participants in the parade than there are spectators. <laughs> but, but it's just sort of, you know, it sort of has a, just a small town feel with kids on bikes and strollers and, you know, um, for 4th of July. So there's things like that that I look forward to every year. We heard from Erica Hoffman in Annapolis and Gary Fuller in Crystal City. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send a tweet to at wamumetro. We have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far at metroconnection.org. I wish I had a house for everybody yeah. because their stories are just incredible. Writing your way to a new home. A Virginia couple gives away their farm with a contest. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up, how to make D.C. more bike-friendly. The former head of the Washington Area Bicyclist Association on how far two-wheeling has come in the district and how far we still have to go. But we'll start things off in rural Virginia on a horse farm built in the 1720s and rebuilt and restored in the 1990s. Rock Spring Farm is in the tiny town of Hustle, about 35 miles southeast of Fredericksburg. But as Randy Silvers and his wife, Carolyn Berry, take me down a horse trail in the property's hilly hardwood forest. As you can see, we have very rolling land out in the woods. It's clear you won't find a whole lot of bustle in Hustle. Sometimes you hear the woodpeckers yeah. hitting on the tree. Yeah. At night, you can hear the, uh, we call them the peepers, the little frogs going beep, 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 beep. This is the, the noise pollution we get in Hustle. <laughs> Randy and Carolyn married in 2009. They're both widowed in their 60s. Randy and his first wife brought the farm back to life in the 90s, but now his rheumatoid arthritis is making it harder for him to maintain the 35-acre property with its house, its horse trails, and its multiple barns and pastures. So he and Carolyn are getting ready to move on. But Carolyn says whoever takes over had best enjoy rural living. Someone who is used to the 7-Eleven around the corner and the Starbucks at the other corner may have a little difficulty adjusting because we're 20 minutes from Port Royal and we're another 20 minutes from Tappahannock. In other words, we're in the middle of nowhere. But as we gather around the kitchen table in the couple's cozy farmhouse, Carolyn says when they decided to give up the farm, one thing was certain. They were not listing it with a real estate agent. Not that we have anything against real estate agents, but he didn't like the idea of strangers traipsing across the property and pointing out what they might consider a flaw because his heart and his soul, his life is this. He built this basically from rubble to what it is. So instead, they're handpicking their successor in a whole different way by holding an essay contest. As Carolyn explains, in 1,000 words, each applicant must express how he or she is A, somebody who loves the land as much as we do, and B, as passionate about their hobby 
Carolyn and Randy's hobby is horses. Their three horses pull the antique carriages Randy builds in the farm's woodworking shop. But Carolyn says the next owner could use the property for anything. Whether their hobby is raising alpacas or sheep or goats or chickens or a rescue operation for horses or dogs, this place has so much potential for somebody who has imagination and drive. Carolyn got the idea for the contest from the Center Level Inn in Maine. The original owners gave away the bed and breakfast through an essay contest back in 1993. I remember that event on the news at that time and had thought, what an interesting novel way of selling, you know, a piece of property. And actually, the woman who won the place just held another essay contest to find her successor. It's becoming a bit of a trend, really. Pay the requisite entry fee, stay within the word limit, and you can enter contests to win everything from a coffee shop in Massachusetts to a log cabin in Indiana to a goat dairy in Alabama. And lest you worry about legality, Carolyn Barry already made sure these contests don't violate any gaming laws. Because writing an essay is skill. So this is a skill-based contest. It's not a game of chance. It's not a lottery. It's not a raffle. And the beauty of it, she says, is it encourages contenders who might not otherwise have a shot at owning a place like Rock Spring Farm, which, by the way, is valued at $600,000. A lot of people want this who most likely would never be able to afford this. We couldn't afford to buy this right now. But she and Randy Silvers hope this contest will help them afford a whole new set of things. They're keeping their fingers crossed that they'll receive 5,000 applications at $200 a piece, making for a total of a million dollars, which would be enough to pay off the farm's mortgage, pay the IRS, start a college fund for the grandkids, buy some place that we can live, with money left over for her and her husband's everyday expenses. And we're hoping that it's enough that he doesn't have to work anymore. Because Randy has put his blood, sweat, and tears into Rock Spring Farm, but he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 2014. Uh, my mother had it, so I saw what she went through. And now he's struggling to care for the place. I can't swing a hammer like I used to. I can do it for about five minutes, and then I'm in such pain I can't do it anymore. And I don't want to have the farm fall apart and then get rid of it. I'd rather have the contest now when the farm's in good shape and I'm in good enough shape to keep it up. Randy and Carolyn are accepting essays through mid-October, at which point they'll hand off the top 25 to a panel of judges. One is a horse enthusiast, one is an educator, and one is a hobby farmer. To stay impartial, Carolyn says, they're keeping submissions anonymous. A trustee is collecting the entry fees and removing all names and addresses before the couple reads the essays. And when they do, they are, of course, keeping an eye out for the basics. Does it have an intriguing beginning? Are the words spelled correctly? Are the sentence structures right? But what matters most? It's the heart of the essay that needs to grab us. And Randy says so far the submissions are overflowing with heart. You just start seeing the people in your mind, trying to imagine what they do, who they are. And how this is going to impact their life. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is going to be a major impact on somebody's life. To say nothing of the impact it'll have on Carolyn Barry and Randy Silvers. They're not announcing the winner until November, but already their emotions are bittersweet. You heard the birds out there chirping. It is hard to even think about moving from here. But the balm for that is knowing that the people who are going to be living here are as passionate about it as we are. Yeah, even simple things, cutting grass. And I think, well, you know, this might be the last summer I cut grass here. Or listening to the, the quiet 
it's heart-wrenching. But the people that do win this will be following in their own dreams, but also carrying on a legacy that this place has started. You can learn more about the Rock Spring Farm Essay Contest, as well as some of the other essay contests going on around the country, on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, from the future of a rural property in Virginia to the future of a historically military one in D.C. About a century ago, Congress appropriated $200,000 to build a new state-of-the-art military hospital. The location was to be what was then rural farmland in the northern tip of D.C. Over the decades, Walter Reed Army Medical Center would treat more than 150,000 members of the military and government officials, even sitting presidents. But by the early 2000s, the complex was in disrepair. And in 2011, Walter Reed dismissed its final patients and closed down. Now the D.C. government is preparing to take over 66 acres of the fenced-off campus for a new mixed-use development that would transform neighborhoods including Tacoma and Shepherd Park. Reporter Nahani Rouse paid a visit to the campus to hear how neighbors view the redevelopment plan as the city's public comment period wraps up this month. I'm walking on Fern Street along the northern perimeter of the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Every dozen paces, there's a sign reminding me that it's U.S. government property, no trespassing. This neighborhood is usually quiet, but today the sidewalk is roped off and a cement mixer churns in front of Steve Watley's house. The roadwork on Watley's doorstep isn't related to the changes at Walter Reed. That construction starts next year at the earliest, though it's already been years in the planning. Watley knows the details of that planning process intimately. He's lived in Shepherd Park for 28 years and is now a member of the Community Advisory Council for the Walter Reed Redevelopment. I think this is going to be an opportunity to really bring a new age to this community. The plans for Walter Reed include housing, shopping, schools, a medical clinic, and a lot of open space. Watley's been involved in dozens of public meetings and hearings, trying to hash out a plan that the developer, the city, and community members can agree on. One of our fears was that it was going to be a crystal city. Some people said Manhattan. I said, but it's not going to be Manhattan because Manhattan builds buildings upward. I was more concerned that they were going to pave it over. But, he says, most everyone involved now feels good about the amount of green space that will be preserved. There are still some disagreements, though, mainly about how high the tallest building should be. The developer, Heinz Urban Atlantic, wants to put a seven-story complex in the center of the development. The developer wanted 85 feet as the height. The ANC, RNC, supported 85 feet. In our view, it's, it's set back so far, that, and it's in a valley, so it's not, it's not as obtrusive. Certainly not as obtrusive as what's there now. Back out in front of Watley's house looms a two-and-a-half-million-square-foot structure the massive hospital built on the Walter Reed campus in the 1970s. That's going to be torn down at a cost of tens of millions of dollars. Who will pay for that is only a small part of the package the city is still negotiating behind closed doors with the developer and the army. How are you? Good, how are you? On the southern side of the Walter Reed campus, I meet Faith Wheeler. She's been actively involved through all the twists and turns and plans for Walter Reed's redevelopment. Should we start out walking? Sure. 
Two popular charter schools will move into this part of the campus. There will be elderly housing, both affordable and market rate, affordable veterans housing, an arts complex, and likely an outdoor pool. Wheeler has lived in Tacoma, a couple blocks away, for 37 years. She's proud of where she lives. Over the decades, she's become attached to Walter Reed's history and gravitas. It's not just a neighborhood campus, it is a national campus. It's a pretty important piece of history of the nation. Wheeler praises the project as a whole, but will use this last public comment period to express one remaining concern. She's among those who don't like the 85-foot-tall building the new zoning allows in the town center. It'll stick way up. And, uh, you know, we'd like it to respect the historic context in the residential architecture in the area. I say goodbye to Faith Wheeler and turn the corner onto Georgia Avenue. This is a major commuter route, which cuts through these otherwise quiet neighborhoods. For right now, all I see is traffic. <laughs> That's Arletha McPherson, looking from her front porch over Georgia Avenue's steady stream of cars, trucks, and buses. Arletha and her husband Alpha just celebrated their 50th anniversary, and most of those decades have been spent in this row house across from Walter Reed. They bought it back in 1972 and have seen a lot of changes here. They miss Walter Reed. Alpha is a veteran, so they used to walk right out the door for medical care, which was helpful because over the years he's needed treatment for two different cancers and diabetes. Can you turn the TV off? Both of them, please. Inside, Alpha sits at the head of a large dining room table. The McPherson's home is busy, with two of their children, a son-in-law, and three grandchildren living with them right now. All of them were raised right here, every one of them, including that one right there, the son-in-law. I'm still raising him. My, my kids call Walter Reed my second home. They called it my club. Joking aside, Alpha McPherson's feelings of gratitude are palpable. I know for a good part of my lifetime, Walter Reed has been a big part of it and has enabled me to enjoy a healthy life. He and many neighbors were dismayed when Walter Reed closed its doors and moved to Bethesda. It was the backdrop for this community. It was what we revolved around, and people always said, as long as Walter Reed is here, the community is stable and we have something that we can hang on to. It was like an anchor. That's what Walter Reed was for this community. The McPhersons have been busy with surgeries and recovery and haven't been following the redevelopment plans closely. Alpha worries about the blight that might follow if new businesses along Georgia Ave go bust, and Arletha doesn't like the idea of tall buildings that block out the light. But they'd both be happy to see Walter Reed made more accessible to the public for the first time since 9-11. My mother would come down here from Ohio, and my kids were small at the time, and she would sit across the street there with them, you know. And, uh, and the gates weren't up at the time. The kids that lived in the neighborhood would go over there and play football over there on the grass and all. Now, further down the McPherson's block, a group of children play ball on the narrow sidewalk while their parents eat dinner on the porch. I've come full circle, and as I walk back towards Steve Watley's house, I wonder what changes are in store as this redevelopment gains momentum. The children bouncing their ball on the sidewalk will be teenagers by the time most of these plans are realized. Their family are renters. Will they have to leave, or will they be around to enjoy a new public park across the street? A park that will replace the no trespassing signs reminding everyone that this is government property. I'm Nahani Rouse. 
There's still time to weigh in on the city's proposed zoning changes at Walter Reed. The district is accepting written comments until July 27th. Learn more on our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now to the future of bicycling. Bikes are booming in Washington. And we're not just talking about hardcore cyclists clad in Lycra. No, more and more people are pedaling their way to work, to run errands, or to head out for a night on the town. And those bright red Capital Bike Share bikes seem to be everywhere. You can now find 3,000 of them at more than 350 stations. So what's next when it comes to two-wheeling in the district? We'll hear more on our regular transportation segment from A to B. Shane Farthing took the helm of the Washington Area Bicyclist Association, the region's largest bike advocacy group, five years ago. Back then, about half as many D.C. commuters were cycling to work. Now that Farthing has stepped down as executive director, transportation reporter Martin DeCaro talked with him about the future of cycling in Washington. So you're 35 years old, you were at Waba for five years, and when you took over there, bicycling was just starting to become popular as a commuting mode in D.C. Do you agree with that? I do agree, and that's one of the big things that I wanted to do that made me want to come to to Waba in the first place. Uh, I, I was one of those people who was a pretty hardcore bicyclist, but I just saw the advantages of, of what could happen if we had so many more people choosing the bike as a just form of rational transportation, not as a form of self-identity in any way. What was the key to getting it going? Well, it was a lot of things. I think a lot of it was was providing people with more information about biking. I think there has been a lot of development in just how the city works and how people move around it today that makes biking a more rational choice for a lot of people. When you look at the alternatives and the cost of those alternatives, you know, biking is, is a way that folks can have their transportation reliable, predictable, affordable, and within their own control. How big was bike share in all of this? I think bike share was huge, and I think there actually are, are separate uh, two pieces to it, one of which really doesn't get uh, studied enough. You know, everyone can tell that having the bikes out gives people the vehicle. You know, it gives them a bike that they can ride anywhere and makes it easy and convenient. I think the other thing that people miss often, though, is the communicative effect of bike share and the fact that putting out these red bike share bikes was really putting out thousands of individual reminders from the local governments that biking is a means of transportation. It was this collective moment for a lot of people to say, whoa, there's something else I can try here, and it may not involve sitting in traffic, and it may not involve sitting on a platform waiting for for Metro. So here we are in 2015, roughly one out of every 20 DC commuters uses a bike to get to work. Yet if we look ahead this year, the District Department of Transportation has pretty modest plans to expand the bike lane network, especially the protected bike lane network in Washington. And that's a key because it makes it safer for everyone. How disappointed are you in the progress or lack thereof this year? It is a disappointing number when you sort of count the number of lane miles that are projected. But I also think that that DDOT is right in the sense that we need to get beyond that as a metric. And we need to start looking at how we're actually going to usefully connect safe spaces for people to get around the city by bike. And what that really means is not just stripes of paint on the ground. What that means is protected infrastructure on our streets where cars are separated from bikes 
and trails that are completed and connected and go to useful places. So let's talk about your favorite debate, bikes versus cars. Uh, I try to avoid that dichotomy in my reporting, but let's be honest, there is a mentality out there still. We look at the Washington Post last year. Cortland Malloy wrote a column saying that bicyclists are bullies and that drivers uh, could be understood if they felt like they wanted to you know, drive a bicyclist right off the road, and that caused an uproar. How far are we toward finally putting this mentality behind us on the roads? Well, I think we have a ways to go, and I, I do think you're right that avoiding that dichotomy is, is probably a, a better way to go because it's just not a very deep look at the question. And uh, Cortland and I have talked since that column, and I think I understand better where he's coming from. I certainly don't agree with the violence or anything of that sort, and I, I don't think he uh, deep down does either. But the reality is there, there is a little bit of a competition, and it's not between separate opposing sets of people. I'm both a driver and a bicyclist. I, I own a car. I own multiple bikes. But I think the problem that, that people are finding is that as the city changes and its economic changes and demographic changes and historical changes that are bringing more people pouring into a confined amount of space. So what we're really talking about is how much space do I get? And traditionally, for the past half century plus, the car driver has been able to assume in American cities that that space would be for them, protected for them, and given to them by public policy. And I think what bike advocates are saying, and pedestrian advocates and community advocates of all sorts are saying, is that we've tipped the balance too far that way. That was Shane Farthing, former director of the Washington Area Bicyclist Association, talking with transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. And want to know what Farthing's favorite bikes are for commuting or riding around town? This here, uh, this looks like a unicycle. What is this? Find out on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all the music we use on metroconnection.org. And while you're there, you can find links to our Twitter feed and our Facebook page so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>